All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fucksters? What's happening? It's me, Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. How's it going? Everything okay out there? How, how's the weather? It's just, it just started, it just like had this massive cloudburst where I am. Just uh, where, the, where the, the sky just opens up with lightning and thunder and dumps massive amounts. I'm in New York. I'm inside. Thank you for your concern. I don't know where you're at, but that's where I am. Everything all right? I'm a little frenetic. I'm a little crazy. But I did the Tonight Show last night. I'm recording this after I did it, so I'm a little loopy, a little jumpy. I think it went pretty well. I, it's weird, you know. I, I always There's something about Fallon that I always like seeing him. He's, he's a good listener. He's a good audience. He's always uh, funny in the moment, and it was, uh, it was fun. Had a good time on the Tonight Show last night. That's is that okay? I hope so. Today on this show, Alex Ross Perry is here, the uh, the film director. His most recent film, Her Smell, with Elizabeth Moss, is available on Apple, Amazon, and other on-demand digital platforms. He's made many other films. He's a real film nerd. We had a top-notch film conversation. He's a he's a he's a very bright guy, intense guy. Got a, he's got a frequency to him. That, you know, you feel it right away. It's good. It's focused. It's intense. It's uh, smart. And uh, yeah, I was in Chicago. A lot of things have happened. I'm, I'm heading home today after a lot of press uh, for the movie Sort of Trust, which I want to tell you uh, this Friday and Saturday night, I'll be at the New Art Theater in Los Angeles with Lynn Shelton doing a Q&A after the 7 p.m. screenings of Sort of Trust. We're now up to 65 theaters, folks. 65 theaters are going to be showing the movie this summer. It opens this weekend at Opera Plaza Cinemas in San Francisco, Shattuck Cinemas in Berkeley, East Street Cinema in Washington, D.C., Tiff Bell Lightbox in Toronto, Kendall Square Cinema in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the Jacob Burns Film Center in Pleasantville, New York. And it just added the Cinema Arts Center in Huntington, New York, and the Nighthawk Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Go to swordoftrust.com to find out when the movie is coming out near you. It's worth it. This movie's been getting crazy press. I don't mean to go on about it, but I got to be honest with you folks. I didn't, I had no idea. I had no idea when you make a little movie like this, like I, I, I wasn't even sure it was going to get done. But, you know, Lynn is like the real deal. So, of course, it got done. But you put a little movie out this into the world and I don't you have no you, you don't know what's going to happen with it. It's getting so many reviews, so much press. It's crazy. I'm very excited about it. But it's not that I had low expectations. I had no expectations. So it's all pretty exciting. And the screening at the Music Box in Chicago, the first show was sold out. It was like 700 people. And just to dip into that theater to watch a movie where it's a comedy, obviously, but 700 people laughing at the same time to the point where they're missing lines is such a it's it's so exciting and so rewarding. I, I got to be honest with you. You know, I'm just thrilled with it. And I, I also want to tell you, please, if you can go see it at a theater. Now, I don't know where some of these theaters are and I don't know how you know, populated the theaters are, but I think you'll probably have a better experience even if you're in a movie theater with five people. 
But I guess if you're really thinking about that way, when it comes out streaming, you could probably invite five people over, maybe your family and a couple other people. But the experience of watching a movie, how they're supposed to be watched communally with a bunch of strangers sharing in that event, in that moment, in that laughter, is really the way to do it. All right? And can I just say that to you? So uh, what else did I do in Chicago? I ate pizza. I did a bunch of press. Hung out with my buddy Joe Swanberg. Yeah, you can watch me on, you know, in the last season of Easy, which he directed. Uh, and I believe Glow is is coming on soon, right? August 9th, I think. The third season of Glow drops. So that's happening. You get to see a, a, a more svelte Sam Sylvia. I'm not going to tell you too much about it, but uh, I'm excited that that's going up. To, you know, you wait a long time for these things, man, right? The other thing I did, which I meant to talk to you about the other day, was that when I was here uh, last week in, in the city, uh, my friend uh, Lynn Shelton, who I've been doing uh, you know, all these dates with, you know, her friend Heidi Schreck is uh, the creator of the show, What the Constitution Means to Me. It's on Broadway. And I got to be honest with you people, and I, I think some of you sense this, but uh, I've had some sort of, you know, s- you know, slow but steady mind shift around things. I, I'm, You know, there is a lot of education that is going into my brain that I didn't have framed properly, or I didn't know, or I didn't think about, or I wasn't sort of really sensitive to or aware about. And it's it's happening. You know, things are going into my mind where where things that I once thought were normal were undeniably fucking, you know, incorrect. And, uh, and, and it's exciting. It's an exciting process. And seeing this play, this, I don't know if you know about it. It's, it's basically, a, it's sort of a one-woman show, but it's a, a, her, her, her character, which is her, Heidi. Uh, she was a, a, a debater, a high school debater, and she used to tour with uh, uh, doing debates. You know, she would make uh, she would save money from winning debate uh, contests to, to go to college, and she would debate, you know, the Constitution, things about the Constitution. So this this whole angle of the show was her going back to some of her arguments and some of the the the, the subject matter of her her high school debates and reframing him into into current culture, you know, around equality, equal pay, equal rights, and, uh, you know, just the reality of how the, the Constitution came to life, what the Constitution means, you know, who does it represent, when was it written, all these stuff sort of woven into the narrative of a woman talking about you, the evolution of the Constitution, you know, you know, seeking, you know, theoretically to protect all people, but falling a little short when it comes to women and people of color and, and, and marginalized people. And I know it was a weird kind of reaction that I had when, when I was told about the show, because it, it sounds like, you know, what the Constitution means to me. It's like, oh, man, it sounds like a class. You know, I don't want to, yeah, I don't want to go learn. Yeah, and I was really resistant to it. But eventually I buckled, you know, and I was like, all right, you know, I mean, Lynn knows what she's talking about. She knows this woman. She'd seen the show. She said it was surprising. I'm going to be moved. It's going to be interesting. You know, you think, you know, you think, you know, things I and I've been talking about this a bit on stage. I, you know, I don't know what I really know or how I know it. You know, I make assumptions. You know, I understand, you know, what the Constitution is and why it's important and some of the fundamentals of it and, you know, why it's necessary. But what do I really know about it? 
I don't know about history. I just kind of plug along, you know, having a fundamental understanding that it's an important document. Uh, but just like everything, I just glean things. I do not, I did not get a good education. Not because it wasn't offered to me, but to get quite honestly, I don't think I was paying attention. And I, I really sort of envy the people that kind of dug into high school, you know, got got hold of civics, got hold of how government works, got hold of American history, you know, put it into context, did their studying, did their homework, and at least had a foundation for some of that basic understanding. I didn't get it because I wasn't paying attention because I didn't give a shit because I was spaced out because I just couldn't focus because I was feeling so awkward and uncomfortable. All I really cared about was feeling not awkward and uncomfortable hanging out with my friends. Like when I think back on high school, I know I had a locker. I knew it was packed with books, but I don't remember ever going to it. I don't remember ever using it. I don't remember doing homework. I don't remember, you know, learning much of anything. And you know, it's a liability. I feel, I feel, um, guilty and shitty that I don't know these basic things. So when I saw a show like what the constitution means to me, it was a, it was a powerful kind of personal story that, you know, framed it from a, a woman's point of view and, and talked about other you know, situations she had been in situations. Other women had been in where they should have been protected and ultimately weren't, but it was also really an education in, in what the constitution means and look, I know it's an important thing, and I know it's a, you know it's 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 what holds us together, and what it's what the country is based on. I don't know the nuances, and they actually they hand out a little pocket constitution while you're there, and it really because of the emotional resonance of of her story and what she has. I don't know how she does this show every night because she's got to go kind of deep in herself every night to access these emotions, which is really another thing I learned is that. You know, I can go up and do my stand-up and I can kind of dig in, but, you know, how, how deep does that really go? How much do I have to offer myself? And when you really start to think about, or when I start to think about acting and really showing up to perform with a full range of emotions, the job is, you know, getting in that, getting down there, digging deep for it and oh, being able to have control over getting there every night. So go see it if you can. I, it should be required. I know a little more about the Constitution, and I've got a pocket Constitution with me, and maybe I'll dig in. Maybe I'll dig in, and maybe we'll start having specific discussions about the Constitution. No, we won't. We're not going to do that. But I, I have the, I, it's, it's available to me now. All right? That's all I'm saying. All right? Did I tell you it's, I saw my dad? I did. He came back. You know, he came back in. Him and his sister and my dad's wife came back in to watch the entire movie. I think I told you that they came in late because they had problems with trains. But they came back in, and I promised I would take them out. And uh, it's it's a it's a, another weird thing about whatever's happening to my heart lately is that uh, you know, look, I don't have any real outstanding beefs with my old man, and you know, and I accept him for who he is, but I don't really see him that much, and and somehow or another, that distance doesn't bother me maybe as much as it should. I I don't feel like I I need to, but you know, he came to the show, and he, you know, he's eighty, man, he's eighty, and he you know he enjoyed the movie, and then I decided I'd take him all out to uh, Russ and Daughters Cafe for some straight up Jew food. And I knew he would enjoy it. And, uh, you know, he's having a little trouble walking and, you know, he's not as sharp as he used to be. And it's just, uh, it's, it's really a, a kind of moving and sad thing to, to realize, like, 
you know, if you don't see your parents enough, especially if they're alive and you're old, I'm a middle-aged man and my father's now an older man, old man, and you don't see them enough, some part of your brain really holds them in a place where they really aren't anymore. Uh, the you, you know, they, they kind of stay your, 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 what you knew them as, your dad, you know, when you're younger and, you know, the vitality of who they were and, and you know, the, the part they played in your life, whether it was bad or good, a little of both with me. You know, no matter what distance I feel like I have from the guy, you know, when I, when I took him out to eat, you know, I sat next to him, I put my arm around him and, you know, and I, I made sure he got what he wanted. He understood what was going on. I, I wanted him to have a nice food. I asked him how it was, you know, I know what he likes. So I, I made sure that he tasted everything and, and, you know, and I helped him get up out of the booth and helped him walk outside. But it's just like, man, it really hit me, man. You know, it just really hit me. You know, not th- so much that my dad's old, but that, you know, I love him and that he, you know, he, you know, he, he, he made me, you know, for better, or for worse. And, uh, and I, you know, I really got, I really got to see him more and I really got to talk to him more because I don't, have, I don't know how much time he's got left. I don't know how much time I got left and I don't know that it's always going to be a great time, but it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter. It's only going to happen once and he's my only dad and I was happy I saw him. And I don't know why I wanted to tell you guys that, but, uh, but really, you know, Make sure you, you you reach out to your folks if they're still around because uh, because they're your folks no matter what you think and you know and I and I'm, I'm amazed that I'm saying this because I've gone through periods in my life where that that wasn't necessarily how I felt you know I felt like you know fuck it once or twice a year is enough I can only handle about an hour that may be true I may only be able to handle about an hour or two but you know I should make them happen as frequently as I can that's all I'm saying and maybe you should think about that too. All right? All right? Show up for your folks. That's that's the new Mark talking there. <laughs> wow. Wow. I can't believe it. I don't know what's happening to me, man. I think I'm getting old. So my guest here now is a... I was, I was excited to talk to him. I was a little nervous because he's intense and he's very focused and he's very smart and he's a great director. Um... Alex Ross Perry has a, a movie out, his most recent movie, has several movies out, uh, is a, a film called Her Smell, which I actually uh, was asked to audition for. It's uh, with Elizabeth Moss. Uh, it's a rock and roll movie. It's available on Apple, Amazon, and other on-demand digital platforms. If you've seen the movie, I was supposed to read for the Eric Stoltz part, though I think he did a very good job. So this is me and Alex Ross Perry talking back in the garage. <laughs> So now, how is that a song? Do you tell? Perfect. I mean, I know this tea very well. You do? Yeah. Well, I just this song. particular one. Harney and Sons. Yeah. Harney and Sons. Yeah. I. Yeah, they're a good one. They're like. A... As we both sip. Yeah, but they're well. I don't. I don't meet many tea guys, and I'm. I'm relatively new to it. Like within the last year or two, I quit drinking coffee. But now, because of my compulsive disposition, like I'm way into the tea thing. Like I travel with bags of loose tea. Yeah, I, 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 I probably have traveled with it if I'm away for long enough. It also makes good iced tea. Oh yeah, I mean, but I like I travel with several different kinds in bags. I travel with my strainer, and now I've got a travel kettle. I'd like that. There's I'd, a there's a kettle you can get. I'll show it. I'd to I'd like you. to get there. I don't have anything like that, but I'll bring it sometimes. Yeah, they gave us a lot of good tea on the movie. Um, they pr- if, they sponsored which movie? On her smell. Harney's was a. Yeah, I think they're thanked in the credits. Is you know. <laughs> 
something like product placement. <laughs> product placement on independent film is kind of this secret, the secret weapon that people can utilize for their own gain. You can just write to them and to any company, yeah. send them a packet with yeah. stills of the actors, a little description of the movie. You can get thousands of dollars worth of things that either is for the crew to eat or sometimes you put them in a scene. Yeah. Even Apple does this. Well, there's this whole production design network in New York of people that you can get. And but but a, did, a, a what about money? Do they give you money? No, never. Oh, but you but get cool shit. Yeah. Sure. It's, I mean, I didn't notice the Harneys in the movie. I don't think I don't think it made it in. I think that was specifically said that that was just for me. But you know, you put it. There is yeah. a scene in the movie where she makes a. a, a cup of tea yeah who's to say that it's not harney and sons well harney's would be because they sent you some and they're yeah. watching it and they're like that i don't see any it's true but and yet it's the only product we were sent that i'm talking at length about on the record it's... well no i know and we're doing it i'm dragging it out of you no it's it i still have a few of them a few of the tins that they sent me it's more just i like tea as a ritual sure like i me, like it because me it's too. delicious and it helps me stay focused but i really like the ritual of brewing it and kind of timing it yeah i, I dig that i mean the I, i'm the same with coffee like when i drank coffee I, you know i got a way of doing it i grind it fresh you know and i've got a, a few different delivery systems yeah french yeah. press cone Whatever. All stuff I don't relate to as a non-coffee drinker, but you when did you when did you make that decision? When did you I've draw the line? I've never drank coffee. I mean, you, I just I've tasted it, but you seem like a guy that is. Uh, I'm projecting, but you might you might you might dis have decided that you're going to stay away from a lot of things. I have stayed away from a lot of things. Yes. <laughs> uh, to me, coffee just is like that's the smell of waking up to go to school. Uh -huh, if my dad has a cup of there's coffee in the house. Uh huh. It's six thirty. I have to get up so and go it's to a, school. Oh, it, uh, like a conditioned, Pav a Pavlovian miserable smell for me. Where'd you grow up? Uh, in Bryn Mawr, outside of Philadelphia. Oh, so that's near Phil. That's near Philly. Yeah, thirty minutes away. I like, like Philly. Yeah, it's really nice. I came to appreciate it a lot as soon as I moved away. Yeah, I think it's one of those uh, cities where they, you know, they did some work and it turned around somehow. Weirdly I, so, yeah. But like, there's, I always, I go, uh, I go to Denix for the, uh, you like the pork with the broccoli on it. Yeah, pork with Rob at Denix at the re, what is it, re, Reading Station, Redding, Reading Market. Like, I'll go out to John's too, but and that's the original. But I don't like, I, I prefer Denix. Yeah, I never ate that before I became vegan when I was 18. I never had the Denix pork, but I tried all the cheesesteaks around town. And oh, before you became vegan? Yeah. Was that what compelled you? Uh, no, no, it was just health, family, cholesterol scares that kind of. I have that too. My dad's. My well, you dad, have genetic cholesterol? Kind of. My dad's dad died like suddenly and weirdly young. Like he was 68, 69. Oh. And from some heart cholesterol thing. And then at that time, my dad got a cholesterol test and was told at the age of, you know, late 40s, yeah. 50 something, you really need to change the way you eat and live. You don't eat terribly. You know, he's not like a big fat guy who eats bacon, eggs, right. every morning. You know, goes for a bike ride every day. Yeah. But he was told, you just have really terrible cholesterol. And at the age of 50, he had to change his diet. And I just thought, I really- Is he vegan? No, but he, you know- Takes the pills? I don't know. I don't know if he takes any. Do you? Pills. No. Huh. But he just, I, I just kind of thought, I don't want to be 50 and be told, even though you think you're healthy, you're not. Well, you know, it's going to happen at some point, Alex. I, ho I hope not. I, I, I hope something's going to happen. Something I don't wanna, will, yeah. I don't want to burst your bubble. I but. know, but I've done everything I can by <laughs> yeah. not having any, anything yeah. with cholesterol. Have you get, had it te tested? My cholesterol? Yeah. Yeah, I got a blood test on a couple years ago. And, all right. Yeah, they said it was like as low as a four-year-old's cholesterol. Oh. Because I haven't, you know, cholesterol is only an animal product, so I haven't eaten any of it in 16 years huh huh yeah i mean i tried to do it 
with just diet and I, it, it, mine's not high but it's borderline but eventually i was just sort of like fuck it i'll take a pillow every once in a while i exercise and i'll take the statin. and yeah. i'll take the statin. yeah I, you know I, I, haven't, there. I haven't felt any re- well you don't have to i'll get to the pills at some point you don't have to but you I don't get... take any vitamins no just a tea yeah as much tea as possible so growing up there like um what'd your what's your old man do he worked in radio which is a big. So you grew up in show business. Well, if you can call it. Was that. he was he on the production side? Uh, when, before I was born, he was a DJ. Really? Uh, in Philadelphia radio. Like uh, just a like music DJ. Yeah. Mm. Um, which meant when we grew up, you know, the thousands and thousands of records in the house, which was always you nice. did have them. Yeah, he just like uh, two months ago sold them all. Like as a as a, an estate almost. I mean, he's like, just finally moving and needed to get rid of them. But you know, we had in our basement just like one wall that was floor to ceiling. That's records. so good. Um, but yeah, he worked. And by the time I was, you know, aware of his job, he worked in the advertising side of it. Uh huh. For this Philadelphia conglomerate that owns four or five stations. Uh-huh. Not uh huh. Not Clear Channel before Clear Channel. Yeah, just called right. Greater Media Philadelphia. And they're probably Clear Channel now. Something like that. They got bought out a couple years ago, which is why he doesn't uh, work there or at all. Anymore. And what about your mom? Uh, she was at home. Yeah. Yeah. Were they? Are they still married? They're not. Mm. But they're both around. Yeah, they're both in the Philadelphia area. And you got siblings? Yeah, I have a much younger sister. From your dad? Uh, well, from both of them. Oh, really? Yeah. They oh. only split up like five years ago. Oh, like, really? Yeah, like so long you, after I'd stopped. You didn't have to choose who to live with or anything? No. I mean, I hadn't really <laughs> seen them together or been home in years when they told me this was happening. Yeah, that happened to me too. Like in my, I guess I was in my 30s maybe. Yeah, I was probably like 29 or 30 when I got a call right after Thanksgiving that they had- It's funny, at that age you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't really speaking to my mom or sister much at that point. Really? I just wasn't going home. And you know, Oh, you mean not because I mean, of problem? No, I mean, there are some, there's, there's problems. Everyone yeah. has problems. Sure. It's kind of weird for families to assume that there'll be like a family who never has some weird problem. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I was just kind of like, okay, well, tell me what I can do. And now I'm the executor of both of their wills. Yeah, of course. The, you're, you're, what, what, how old is your sister? Um... Like, I would say maybe 26 or 27. But you're the one in charge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm the one who, you know, yeah. has a job. And, and you're, uh, you know, and you're and you're talking to your mom again. Yeah, a little bit. That's That started happening again kind of after they split up. That's weird. I, I don't hear, I, I don't often hear the uh, the dude's issue with moms on that level. Like, it's all, it's all, for me, it's always dad. So, like, there's part of me that's sort of like, wow. You got that mad at your mom. That must have been pretty intense. Oh, uh, yeah, very intense. I mean, it's, I, you know, overbearing Jewish mother is hard for someone like me that doesn't like overbearing people at all. <laughs> it was just a lot. <laughs> Wait, cause, well, you seem like a, a fairly uh, sort of um, uh, earnest and open uh, man. And I'd imagine if uh, the overbearingness could be kind of obliterating. Yeah, it's too much. You got pushed back. Like, I can't, like, a call every week. Like, how's it going? I need to call you and complain about something. I just was eventually, like, I can't. I can't pick up the phone and listen to a 25-minute rant once a week about, like, someone at the store that pissed you off today. Like, I just don't need this in my life. It's exhausting. Yeah, it's exhausting. But Um, it's not, in terms of transgressions, it's minor. It's very minor. That's why everything's fine now. Yeah. But, yeah, I really loved going to the radio station with my dad. And the, the kind of fun part of it was... You know, he had this weirdly just unrestricted access to Philadelphia area concerts. So you went to everything. I mean, yeah. for free for, you from, know, from when you were a little kid. Uh, yeah. Like teenage years. Was music always your thing. Uh, kind of. When I was a teenager, it certainly was very important, especially because I could go to two or three concerts every week. For and you're free. in you're in your late 30s. I'm 34. So that was like, who were the people? 
Like the first concert I ever went to was Stone Temple Pilots. That's all right. And then the next one was Bush and Veruca Salt. Mm. Now Veruca Salt are very important for this new movie. Yeah. Um, like a lot of at that time, just modern alternative rock. Yeah. Uh, and then through that, like, you know, within the next five years, got very into 80s and 90s and then 70s punk just by working backwards from the influences of bands I was listening to. Well, you know, you use that pop cover that's sort of like a, a, a kind of essential pop cover the uh only one song yeah yeah so another that, like, girl another planet like it's yeah. very specific and to me like i know that from the replacements right the replacements covered it yeah and i you know then i learned that they cover i learned i learned about the only ones and yeah. now i like them and the replacements are one of my all-time favorites and sure through them you can it's just kind of like started with what was on the radio yeah which i listened to a lot both but it's still of, kind of an esoteric cover it, like you know it's, well, some people think it's a blink One Eight Two song Oh, did because they Blink cover it as well? Yeah, which I didn't know. Yeah. I I know this is a very famous replacement sloppy cover. And yeah. I guess in like 2004 or five, yeah. long after I would have been paying attention to anything like that, Blink-182 did a similarly well-known cover. Well, I came to I like I came to Power Pop later. There's a whole world of of that ilk of music that you know, when I was in the you know in the early '90s, it wasn't popular at all. Really, there was, was never a... a popular part of it. There was yeah. not like the band that put it on the map. Right. It was yeah. all like it and was the, always and, something that. And it was someone... their oh, it was their best song, I think. Really, I mean, I've listened. They only the only ones have only had a couple albums, yeah. I believe. Yeah, not many. I really love a song of theirs called "People of Today." Oh yeah, that's, that's a, a good song. That's a really good song. Yeah. So like, let's go back though. So you're 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 a music kid and you're Jewish and how Jewish? A hundred percent. No, I mean, but but I mean, but did you? I do, had a bar mitzvah. Oh, so you're uh, middle class. Middle class, like Jew, reform, right? Oh, reform, reform, not conservative. Reform no, oh, yeah. no, not at all. Guitar player in the synagogue? Uh, no. Okay. Piano, good. maybe. Oh, really? I don't Stained remember. glass. Oh yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, like Jewish enough that we would celebrate high holidays. Not much else. Mm -hmm. I had a bar mitzvah, which kind of became an infamous event. Um, you know, oh, in my, infamous to who? The uh, to, to my family and uh -huh. to, to my synagogue. Yeah. And um, you know, like like my, my wife is from Oregon. She yeah. never met a Jew until she moved to the East Coast. Well, was it, was she surprised? Uh, I think so. I mean, I wasn't there for it, but I think she was pretty shocked. <laughs> But like you know, in contrast to that, I spent you're, you're two not years. Like they, they explained Jews to be. No, they they yeah, she didn't have any clue. <laughs> I wasn't the first one she met. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, but you know, I spent two years at a bar bought mitzvah every single weekend. Sure, of course. But mine, you know how like were they competitive? Sometimes, I mean, yeah. you had to clear the day. It's really is no, like, but I mean, like like you know, who oh, had the better of party? The most money. Yeah. Yeah, probably. Uh -huh. I mean, you know, my town wasn't. I mean, I come from the main line so sure. there are very rich people yeah and then there's kind of one tier down which yeah. is more like my part of town yeah but you know how at a bar mitzvah after the sort of ceremonial torah reading mm -hmm. the the child can give a speech the half torah and then the speech like yeah. a little speech sure. on the topic of yeah. their choosing yeah until my bar mitzvah this was allowed to be something that was unproofed and unsupervised. Uh -huh. Like you could just write it yourself and bring it in <laughs> yeah. and I was so into like at that time just like you know, just watching comedy on TV and like just being a bratty asshole. Yeah. And I like wrote this speech about how disappointing it is in life to be served with something like a bar mitzvah that is robbed of its ceremonial meeting and just becomes like six months of extra homework. Yeah. And I drew this long comparison to like getting um, like chocolate sprinkles and having a rainbow one in the sprinkles. Uh huh. And how the rainbow one is the bar mitzvah. Uh -huh. And like my parents just described looking out at my family and just like jaws on the floor. And then the rabbi- Lenny Bruce is on the pulpit. I was so proud of myself. 
I'd also broken my hand two days before. Yeah, so you were you had a cast? cast. Yeah, and the rabbi put his hand on my shoulder and essentially said, "We failed to teach you the meaning of this." <laughs> he did. Yeah, out he, loud. Yeah, in front of everybody, and um, yeah, and then after that, everyone at my synagogue had to have their speeches read in advance by the rabbi. The vetting process. Yeah. So that was kind of the end of my relationship with the temple. But also a nice metaphor. Like, you know, you could see early on that you had a sort of visual thinking and, uh, you know, poetic, you know, the sprinkles analogy. That yeah. I think that's what it's going to be known as. The, I think the, so. The famous sprinkles analogy. So then, analogy. like, you know, the sign-in board at the, at the party? Yeah. Like, dozens of people just wrote, like, sprinkles on it. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, that was kind of the end of me and my, my relationship with the temple. Yeah. was it? But it was the beginning of your uh, provocateur career. Of realizing I could entertain people yeah, by the... being obnoxious. <laughs> <laughs> That's an important lesson to learn. But you didn't go into comedy. I did. Yeah, no, I, I it, it kind of wasn't like public speaking wasn't that fun. Yeah. No, it's notoriously not fun. Yeah. But did you ever do stand up? Uh, no. Oh. Like I was um, the other day, actually, uh, one of the actresses from Her Smell, uh, Ashley Benson, was on um, The Tonight Show yeah. with Fallon. And I went because I just love talk shows. So like I was just watching. Which one's she? Uh, she's Roxy in The Acre Girls. Okay, yeah, yeah. She's yeah. the blonde one. Okay, she was yeah. in Spring Breakers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I went because I've always loved TV show tapings. And when I was a kid, I would just watch, you know, Letterman and yeah, Conan and yeah. uh, Craig Kilborn every night. Yeah. And I went and I was like, all I ever wanted when I was growing up was to work with someone who would be on the show promoting something. I never wanted to be on a show. I never wanted to sit on TV and like have makeup on. Not even in the 70s? I wasn't around then. No, I know. But like, it seems like, like there was a time where people of your ilk, you know, because you're, you're a thoughtful, uh, Semitic artist who ob- who obviously can talk, but like, you know, you're the kind of like a good Cavett guest. Yeah, you mean like Cassavetes and Ben Gazzara and sure, Peter man. Falk like, promoting but, husbands yeah, but, and just, yeah, that would have been. Back when, when that type of person was actually on talk shows a lot. I guess maybe, yeah. I, well, I didn't know this at the time. I guess yeah. when I saw that stuff later, I thought that looks fun. Yeah. But all I ever wanted was to just like go to a taping where someone's promoting something I worked on. Were they is that were they promoting the movie? Yeah, yeah. She was there to show a clip of her smell. and. Um... You know, I was up for a part in that. You mentioned this. And it's you not didn't my know it. List. I mean, I, it, you know, you get these massive lists. Sure, I know casting. And then yeah. it's like, are you interested in people on this list? And I say yes. And then it goes, okay, well, actually, three of these people are unavailable. And I think that's where- That's, that's where, where it happened? That's where we terminated. Because like when, when I get it, this is, the, this is the sort of the drop off between, you know, you, the director of the movie and the writer and, you know, what I got. Like, you know, basically what I got was like, you, this movie's yours to have. That's what they said to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it really needed me to ex- have meetings with actors and explain stuff to them. Yeah. Well, let's go. Let, let's go back before we get to this movie. So you, you know, so you don't do comedy, and you know, when did the interest in film? Because I think you're a very unique filmmaker with a, a, a you know, real control of the craft in 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 the sense that you know I've watched three of your films, and they all you know they're all unique, but you you know how to control the look you're looking for. Yeah. Um. So my high school had a TV station in the basement. Yeah. That was the cable access for our township. Oh, yeah. And when I was in middle school, all I wanted to do was get there. Like there were these guys that had a show called Telegrande. Yeah. And they were on when I was like in eighth and ninth grade. And grown all ups? I wa- uh, no, they were juniors and seniors. Yeah. So yes, grown ups yeah. to me at the yeah, time. Yeah, right. And all I wanted to do was get to that TV studio in the basement and just hang out with these guys who wore, you know, jackets with punk patches on them and yeah. just learn from them. Right. And then as soon as I got to high school, I was in the TV studio 
every day after school until I graduated. And my friends and I eventually had our own show all of our junior and senior year. Like we got the- So you were learning how to cut and produce. Yeah, like shooting on VHS, Uh Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, editing until six or seven at night. And then the show goes out every Thursday. Yeah. And we were in it and we would make little videos and little kind of pieces and- So it's hands on. on. Yeah. All day, you know, and that was all I really cared about. There was no grown-up oversight? There was one woman named Nikki Comstock who who ran the studio and because she she wasn't a teacher, mm-hmm. so she didn't work like 8 to 3. Right. She worked 9 to 5 or 10 to 6, so we could stay really late with her. Right. And she was really instrumental. She just let us do our thing, and that was hugely important. And then I watched these other people graduate and go to film school. Yeah. And I thought, oh, I didn't know you could do that. Right. You can keep doing this. You can just go to another place with a room in the basement and shoot stuff with your friends. And yeah, I mean, I did it for years. I just was down there shooting every day and making these silly little... Were you going out in the world and doing it and yeah, bringing like, it back in? Yeah, we would go around and like, you know, go to our houses, go to the mall, go around town. Did shoot. you do any of the stop action stuff? People driving around on their butt? Uh... No, okay. driving around on their butt. Well, you know where you kind of like, you know, people act like they're in a car and oh. do the frame by frame thing. Oh well, I got into, I did like little stop motiony things yeah. at home, right? With the video camera my dad bought me, yeah, which actually is the camera we shot the video flashbacks on in her smell. Really, and I would move sculpy figures around. So you had that thing, and you Sony know, Sony Hi8 Handycam, yeah. And, and you like you kept hold of that in case you would need it. I mean, this is the way my dad's house is. That's why he's getting rid of all of his records from the '80s now. So he's a pack rat, kind of, of yeah, the cool stuff which I've inherited. And then I, yeah, this time last year before the shoot, I just texted him. I said, "Is that camera still around?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "Can you overnight it to us? I, I think I need it for the movie." And then yeah, there's images in there from the camera that I got for Hanukkah in like 1997. Those are the ones where you shot them in the past with the gold record and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. So when you go, so you went to NYU. Yeah, so I went from yeah. So then I was in Bryn Mawr, and then NYU was next. And was that? And that was sort of when did you? Because it seems like, you know, you have pretty specific heroes you know, around you know film and and uh, literature and how you want to present stuff. I'm always sort of, it, it's always interesting to me to to see how independent filmmakers that surface. You know, the choices they make, you know, you know what they're based on, you know, because like, you know, you said you're staying over at Jeff and Aud- Aubrey's house, uh, Jeff Baina, who I know. He's another guy that makes sort of very there. You know, there, there's a vision in place mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, like I watched like I watched uh, Queen of the Earth and I, you know, I'm not I'm I'm not a stick in the mud. I'm not a prude, but I don't know what happened at the end. And, you know, that's your decision. Fair. Uh, but I understand the poetry of it and what you choose to put on and what you, you know, what you choose to show and what you choose not to show in terms of constructing a story. So I guess my, my, my question is, when you were at NYU, what was really kind of putting your personal visual framework together, an intellectual framework? Yeah, I mean, even before that, do you remember in 1998 when the AFI Top 100 list first came out? Yeah, kind of. That was very important because through that, I, it was because of that that I watched Clockwork Orange and Blue Velvet. I just watched that on a screen again in England. Clockwork uh, Orange? Yeah, new print. I just saw it in New York on a print a couple of weeks ago for the it must be out. 50th right. time. Yeah. Um, it's one of my top 10 favorite movies of so all time. So Clockwork Orange and what was the other one? Blue Velvet, which were both on the AFI Top 100. Really? Those two? Well, those are just the ones that I remember seeing that blew my mind the right. most as okay. a 13-year-old. Oh, okay. So then I just got into, you know... You, they, that list gave you the, the, the sort of primer to being a film head. Yeah. Right. And then I tried to work my way through it, but I look at those movies and I think, 
I need to see everything else by this filmmaker. And my dad had been a huge Twin Peaks fan. And when I got into Blue Velvet, he said, a guy I work with at the station has all the videotapes he taped off of TV of Twin Peaks, which yeah. you can't see anywhere else right now. Right. It's like 97, 98. Right. And then, you know, just so I was kind of getting into that very, you know, 101 stuff. But what, in, in looking at like the way you, you work, I mean, I wouldn't have seen, I wouldn't have sourced anything that I've seen of yours to those two influences. What was it about those two directors that, that you, in retrospect, find compelling? Well, they just gave me the idea, you know, very common that there's some filmmakers that you can look at a movie and within two seconds know who made it. Okay. That was very important. So then by the time I was at NYU, you know, like a lot of people who are 20, I was just became obsessed with French New Wave. And if it was on- Yeah, I can see that. If it was on Criterion, I had to have it. Yeah. If it was playing at Film Forum, I had to go see it. Sure. If it was at Anthology Film Archives or yeah. MoMA, I had to go see it. And so then, you really, you were going, you suddenly were running I just, around. Suddenly I became just omnivorous. And I was, I worked at Kim's Video at the time. I'm on 8th? Uh, yeah, on St. Mark's. Yeah. St. Mark's in yeah. between second. I remember third. that place. Yeah, the three, three Yeah, floors. there's three fours, and you're like, what's being sold on this floor? Yeah. Like, where, where's the, where do I rent? How, yeah. Why is it so confusing here? Rent on the top floor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I worked on the middle floor with uh, DVD sales and, and vinyl uh-huh. until vinyl moved downstairs to the music. But um, just omnivorous. I mean, I would go see a double feature of B Westerns at Film Forum, uh-huh. go to work for eight hours at Kim's, take a sexploitation movie home or a 70s horror movie home and watch that and then get up the next day go to class so what do you think you took from like you know if if you're focusing on the new wave like in terms of uh uh, how it affected your particular vision you know what was it about those films and those guys i mean you know when you see those those images when you're watching when you're discovering beyond like the top five movies yeah like you see 400 blows and right you're like this is a masterpiece you i see get breathless it. And you yeah. See, yeah, yeah and then yeah. like two or three Jules years and jim yeah and i'm moved yeah. emotionally by these and they're they're literate yeah and they're smart and they're funny and they're hu- they're human yeah and then but then you know a couple years later after 400 blows you see these other antoine dwinnell movies and all i ever wanted was to like make a movie like bed and board or stolen kisses like, uh-huh this this adult boy stumbling through his romantic life and he can't get it together and just i mean i must have watched those two movies a dozen times each when i finally got to them and just seeing leo just be this kind of you know life physical actor who's also smart and he's reading philosophy in bed i was just like this is this is fantastic right so that's that that's what informed you is that you know that there is this sort of um French intellectual way of life. Yeah. Uh, that that you don't, like that, I think that there, a certain type of uh, uh, American kid aspires to, but it's a very specific thing. Of course, thing. and it's, you know, the, the, the men and the women are both gorgeous. Everyone in the movies mm-hmm. is beautiful. The photography is just simple and, and elegant, and it seems smart, but they're also, you know, so rooted in the history of other movies, which makes sense if you're me and you're watching three things a day. And yeah, and then like you go deeper and you go beyond those guys and you end up watching all the Romero movies and all the Rivette movies. And now I'm just at retrospectives all the time and like hanging out with people from Kim's and we're just seeing movies together and and talking about and just talking and then going out and drinking a lot. 
before I stopped doing that as well. And just, I don't know if you know Anthology Film Archive. Sure. I mean, that's what- I think it's still going. Oh, absolutely. Like on second or yeah, third? Yeah, second and second. Yeah, second and second. Um, no, they just kind of raised a bunch of money for an expansion. Okay. But I lived one block away from there in my NYU dorm. Yeah. And they have the Essential Cinema series where, yeah, if you haven't seen Brackage projected or you haven't seen Michael Snow Wavelength projected- Wavelength, right. Yeah, you walk right in and if you have a membership, the Essential screenings are free. And I could see prints of all these movies one block from my dorm and then, you know, go to Film Forum and watch East of Eden. Yeah. And that to me makes sense as a perfect day. Right. So I was just, you know, everything that was screening, I needed to go see. And you were, I mean, you were down, you're filling up the hard drive. I was. And you know, I mean, like, I'm barely talking about NYU because my time there was just like, yeah, I go to class, get out, and then I'm at, and I can go to the movies. What did you learn there? Um, you know, not a lot. But any practical skills, shooting, you got to shoot, right? Yeah, but I immediately, it's one of those things like, it's like learning math. Right. In middle school, I just am like, oh, I I won't use this. Right. Like, I don't want to be the cinematographer. Right. Even though I'm learning how to load a camera. Yeah. This doesn't speak to me. I want to work with someone who loves this. And it'll be obsolete soon. Yeah. I was just, I I like the writing teachers a lot. There Uh is this great professor there who's still there, I think, named Carl Bardosh. Yeah who's like a Hungarian intellectual. Yeah. And he turned me on to some very strange Eastern European cinema that at the time I'd never heard of. Uh-huh. Like Sergei Perejadnov and uh-huh. at the time, you know, Kislowski, which was unknown to me. And as a writing professor, what what did you glean that you took with you? Not a whole lot. I mean, you know, like it's a wasteful system. Like what I always say in terms of the progression out of school into my first movie, which cost $15,000 and we shot it in one week. Like my senior thesis film was a 20 minute $20,000 film. Yeah. And I was the cheapest one in my class. Yeah. And everyone kind of spent, now some people are spending $50,000. What was that called? Impo- uh, the first movie is called Impolex. Yeah. Impolex. So that, what, that wasn't made in school though. So, but, but you know what you're learning what is What was like, the thesis movie? Um, it was like a very Leo, like, you know, Leo new wave inspired movie uh-huh. about a, like a young guy in New York who loves older women. Uh huh. And what they teach you is basically like spend $50,000 on a short, have a feature based on the short. And then if the short's good, you can go to Hollywood and you'll make the feature for $5 million. Mm -hmm. And I bought into that. And then within a couple of years, like one year of graduating, you know, like your, our our mutual friend, Joe Swanberg is making $5,000 movies. He's also making 5,000 movies. Yeah. Well, at the time, (laughs) only three or four, Yeah, yeah. but I'm at Kim's and I'm seeing DVDs from people my age. And Sean Williams, my DP, who worked at Kim's as well, shot this movie called Frownland. Yeah. Which was like, I mean, that movie is like Sex Pistols at Manchester for a lot of filmmakers in New York. Oh, yeah. Like seeing that movie, uh, if you've never seen it, I think you would probably really like it. Yeah. It's just like so aggressive and so raw. And uh, seeing that, all of us, we were like, we can do this. Like everyone who saw that movie want, just like became a filmmaker immediately. Uh-huh. And I was like, I have no excuse. I can't make a $5 million movie based on my thesis. I can make a $10,000 movie in six days. Yeah. That's what everyone's doing now. And then I just set off to do that. And then we did it like a year later because all the people like Joe and Lynn, again, like all these mutual friends now were coming up at the same time and spending more than five or 10 grand on a movie and sp- spending more than eight days shooting it was unthinkable why would why would you do that there's no reason like you can do it you can do it so why not well i mean i guess in the long run that that uh Prudence and practicality helps you. Beyond, but beyond I, anything. Yeah, but I mean, it, it is nice to have more money and more time, isn't it? It's nice now. Yeah. But, you know, 
It's like if you grew up poor, your family could split a can of soup for two days. Yeah. And I, if it's you, not preferable. No, it's not preferable. Survival. You know that you won't die. Yeah. And if you make a feature for $10,000, 15, and then you make another one for 25, and then you make one for a million, yeah. you feel like you have everything in the world. Right. And you know, I still know people that think you can't do this for that budget. And it's like, I did this for $20,000. Yeah. But do you look back at those films and see- are there things that you know in the earlier movies where you're like that was really a better movie than my million dollar movie? Uh, no. Yeah. I mean, there's that kind of purity in mm. there, which is to say, you're making them for no reason. Like you're not making them because you want to get into the industry. You're making them because you must. You want to get your friends together and just shoot something. And but is, have you like when did that change for you? I mean, like when did you? I mean, because you, your industry is specific. I mean, you are in a world yes. of independent film. You're not. You know, you know, gunning to make you know, uh, you know, big budget movies necessarily. No, not at the moment. I'm gunning to 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 write them. Yeah. Um. You know, I mean, it just because I, I there's nothing else I could offer. It's not like I'm doing this as a hobby. Well, what was the first uh, feature about? What were the decisions around it? Of Impolex? Yeah. Uh, it was inspired by Gravity's Rainbow. Did you finish Gravity's Rainbow? Oh yeah. And the second I put it down, I thought I don't think I'll grapple with this book or finished thinking about it until I spend a year making my own response to this. Really? Yeah. I mean, like I couldn't get through it. Yeah. I feel bad about it. uh, I, it changed everything for me. I can, I can get through, you know, uh, crying of what 49 yeah, I love uh, v uh i got through vineland i got mm-hmm. through yeah i mean like i like him there's pension. a mode of his that you prefer you like the more contemporary well, it's just like it, it was so daunting and it was such a challenge and like you know i got to stay focused for that long yeah it's, i mean it took me a whole summer to read but then it changed everything and i immediately knew that i should leave my job at kim's and get my friends together and make this movie about rockets because you know, just like as a sort of artistic response. The opening line is about missiles, right? Yeah. yeah. Screaming comes across the sky. Yeah. The last line's great. Now everybody. Uh-huh. Uh, that's what you missed when you didn't get to the end. Perfect last but, line. Uh, well, I like the summary. Yeah. That, and then there's a bunch of stuff in the middle of those two lines, too. <laughs> but yeah, I just was like, as a sort of, you know, I mean, it's basically an experimental film. Yeah. And it only really played at festivals with the word underground in the title. Yeah. But I just had to do Feature it. Feature length? Yeah. It's, well, it's 73 minutes. Yeah. I just had to do it. I had to make my response to this piece of work that had influenced me so much. And it was fun. And then I got to go to festivals and I met tons of people that I had never known. I knew Jew at, uh, Jew, Joe at this point already. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting uh, yeah. a real slip there. There's yeah. no one less Jewish than Joe Swanberg. That's true. But he's a great guy. He's, oh, yeah. I, I like working Totally with him. supportive. But I knew him already. And then just going to festivals and meeting tons of other filmmakers, I immediately wanted to make another movie so that I could be back at festivals meeting more filmmakers. And what was the second movie? It's called The Color Wheel. Yeah. It's the only one of my movies that I'm in. I mean, that's the one about the it's brother, family? It's a brother-sister road trip movie. Oh, oh it is. Of, Who's yeah. in that? Uh, it's me. Yeah. And then this actress uh, named Carlin Altman. I saw you in Joshi, right? That's right. I'm in Jeff Baina's movie, yeah. Joshi. Yeah. I like that movie. Yeah. It was a lot of fun to make. Yeah. So the color wheel. So that, like, what, what compelled you? Uh, again, like, it was from novels. I was reading a lot of Philip Roth at the time. Hmm. And just, like, with Pynchon, I thought, I kind of need to make, I need to write my response to what these novels make me feel. Which are the Zuckerberg novels or the other ones? It was really the Professor of Desire that oh, yeah. gave me that movie because carlin's character is moving out of living with her professor okay and um see it's so like this is like for me like you know when you talk about french intellectuals people you know actors reading philosophy and you know and philip roth it's like it's a real kind of like you know uh 70s jewish intellectual trip i know that's 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 my 
you know, uh, a tweed jacket, corduroy pants. I love Rothman. I, I read the shit out of him, and it's, I still it's, do. It was so important. I want to start rereading some of his books. But, have you read all of them? Uh, well, I have read them all but one because- Which one? Uh, I've not read Exit Ghost. Oh, really? Yeah, with, with, with uh, filmmakers and novelists who have a big body of work that I love, mm. I kind of like to have one thing that- is, You hold out on? Yeah, just like for when I'm 50, I can have one new Philip Roth book to read. Yeah, I think I read that one. I think I read all the later ones. I, I uh, Sabbath Theater. That's my favorite. Right? Yeah, that book is is the phenomenal. Bat. Freddie Sabbath, right? Uh, M- Mickey is Sabbath. Mickey Sabbath. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, jacking off on the grave of his yeah, the, deceased lover. I mean, it's it's perverse. And I'm reading these it's on an the outlier too. Yeah, it's a one off. No, yeah. I, I'm reading these on the subway, and I'm just thinking like the the sickness in these. These are bestsellers at their in their time. Yeah. And I'm reading these on the train, and I feel like. People are going to look at me. Like you're dirty. And I want to write a movie that's kind of like that. So, so it's that this was... weird kind of, you know, sexual, repressed, id, yeah. you know, Jewish bickering sibling movie that ends with incest. Great. Yeah, exactly. Sort of like Spanking the Monkey. Very much so, yeah. Uh, or House of Yes as well. It's like, again, like, this is 2010 that we're making it, but it's trying, for me, I'm trying to make one of those, like, classic 90s, like, it's black and white, 16 millimeter, one of those indie movies that... When I was 13, 14, I would read about at Sundance and be like, oh, like an indie movie about incest. That sounds cool. And, right. And, like uh, like those movies like like Stranger Than Paradise. Yeah. And, which yeah. was very important to me. I mean, again, like when I was in NYU, like discovering Jarmish. Yeah. Like it was just not, not what I wanted to do. Like I didn't want to be doing like his style wasn't speaking to me. But he something. mixes it up. Yeah. But I was never like what I want to do is like very dry deadpan movies where the camera never moves yeah. i just loved the identification of his work as a pure artist it's so funny the one thing i remember a quote of him when I, I must have read it in a film magazine back in the day like remember his movie mystery train yeah that when the japanese tourists are uh unpacking their luggage in their yeah. hotel room you know he shoots it you know how they've packed mm-hmm. and in an interview he said you know i wanted the the packing of the luggage, the way the stuff was in the bag, to look like a like one of those little transistor radios when you pull it back off. Interesting, of it. yeah. Like I just thought, like, oh man, that's like you know really attentive, you know. Yeah, no, I mean, but again, like just seeing that detail in his work, like just knowing that there are artists behind these bodies of work was very exciting to me. Well, yeah, Even that you can make, you know, you have complete control of the frame to a degree so you can make these decisions. And like, you know, the I guess the spectrum of that goes from like, you know, somebody who's, you know, totally loose like Swanberg to like, you know, Wes Anderson that is like everything's like a goddamn, you know, uh, uh, little, you know, what do you call those boxes? Where, yeah, you like know, a picture box. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, at this time, you know, I was so, these two movies, you know, the visual style at this point is just developing because I've shot both of them on 16 millimeter. Um, so you got to be a little economical, huh? Well, very much so. But yeah. also now suddenly there's this aesthetic that I didn't even really think about where the movies feel very timeless, very 70s or 80s or 90s. Well, you know, I thought that uh, the Queen of Earth felt kind of organic. Yeah, that's so then by so for Listen Up, Philip onward up into her smell, the movies were all shot on Super 16. But like what struck me about it, and I watched uh, the the Philip movie, um, and that that's more of uh, that the kind of romanticizing the novelist of the seventies. Very much so, yeah, yeah. But I liked it. I like him, and I and I like the old uh, cranky guy, Jonathan Price. Yeah, yeah, an amazing guy, great actor, and yeah, really a great actor. Really fun to make that movie. I mean, that was amazing because you know, again, my color wheel was twenty five thousand dollars, right? And now I have just under a million bucks. Having you know nine hundred thousand dollars after twenty five thousand. I mean, I felt I felt like the richest man in the world. I felt like what I could do on this movie 
it, it expanded by you know well, I think it's a, a, by by a whole you know just a big bang of resources. And, but you're still you but you still strike me as somebody who's going to use that money well. That you I know, think you so. in the sense that like what does this enable me to do relative to what I want to see? Yeah, and it's and also most importantly, it's I'm bringing all the same people from the smaller movies. Yeah, same DP. I shot all six of my movies from Impolex, and like I said, still we, yeah, like I said, we worked at Kim's together, so we go back. But that's interesting because you know the the quality you know you do. You know, you clearly have control over you know what you want us to see, and and um, but it's not stylistically the same, movie to movie. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just for me. Like, I love, even though I'm talking about like, oh, I love you. You can tell a Kubrick movie right away, like. But you, you know, what's the connection visually between 2001 and The Shining? Like, no, right. Everything, but also nothing. Just to make a different movie every time. There's something. There's something about the way he moves the camera. Always, that's pretty always consistent. the same. But yeah. the milieu of the movie and the style changes based on what the material is. Sure. And I find that you know that or like even more recently like you know a guy like Soderbergh, you just want to do something different. You don't want to say like once you get the skill set, why not mix it up? Yeah. So I want to do like a big sprawling literary kind of sad comedy like Philip, and then do a claustrophobic '70s style thriller like Queen of Earth, and then make a kind of Romer-esque movie like Golden Exits, like, and then make a huge neon glittery rock. It's just like, yeah, it's just so much fun for me to challenge this wonderful crew that has made all these movies with me. Yeah. To say, and keep it fresh. We must do something different at all times. And like, well, in the queen of earth in terms of like, it, it, it's, but it's a thriller in, in, in the, the artistic sense uh, of what thrillers used to be. The loosest sense of the word. Right, but it's a psychological thriller. Yeah. So it's not like, you know, you're not going to find out who the killer is at the end. Yeah, I always said that if the movie ended with someone being stabbed, it would have made a million dollars. Right. But it, no, it's not about that. It's about a psychological breakdown of one woman who just, just in close up. Right, and but, you know, it becomes clear two-thirds of the way through the movie that maybe some of what you've been seeing might be from her point of view and not, you know, honestly happening. A hundred percent. And it's fun because, like... You know, I don't know if you've ever done something like this where you kind of feel like it's time to go back to basics. Uh-huh. But we made Impolex, like I said, in one house in one week for $15,000. And then we made Queen of Earth in one house in two weeks. for. And the, Joe produced this movie, and this was when Joe was starting his production fund. Yeah. Um, you know, for a, a quarter of what Listen Up Philip cost. Yeah. But it was fun to take these famous actors and go make a movie basically exactly how we made my first movie. And then just say, you know, we're all going to go up to this house. We'll, Where uh, was it? Uh, it was in Poughkeepsie, uh-huh. kind of near Poughkeepsie. Yeah. Carmel, New York. Yeah. And just, you know, we have the house. We have the house next door and we shoot and it's two weeks. And Scripted? It, yeah. That was like a 70 page script because after Listen Up, Philip, I knew that Lizzie Moss, I knew that she brought a lot of ideas that kind of sparked a tangent is how'd you how'd you meet her because you seem a little obsessed with her well we've done three movies i mean just really through casting on philip like jason was in yeah and then i got a list of you know these are some actresses that would be available at this time and i saw her and i thought wow she'd be amazing in this all i can think of is her in mad men and top of the lake yeah she wants to come make this brooklyn literary sad comedy that would be really exciting her and jason that'd be a fun couple but at some point you realize that she is you know she has multitudes within her on that set i mean right away on day three or four i just was like oh, she's, philip yeah she's firing on all cylinders and then six months later sent her a 70 page script for queen of earth and but said, queen of earth is like that's a, that's a, a, a taxing exercise for an actress yeah. and you you were completely sort of 
I imagine, like, thrilled and curious to see how far she could take it. Very much so. And just very trusting and doing whatever we could to give her that. Shoot the movie in order. Let her, you know. Oh, you would have to, huh? Yeah, we shot it in order from start to finish. And, you know, she was, that was her first producing credit that she wanted to transition into learning that side of things. I really like the movie. And it, like, it's sort of. I'm very proud of it. Of of Queen of Queen of Earth, yeah, yeah, because like you know, it made me realize some things in terms of writing because you know I'm writing with Lynn, and like there, in terms of you know what you what how are you going to serve this story and what is the story and and you know how do you overserve it, like the Just you the, know. the bare the bare essentials, right? You know what can you do in a house where all you have is two great actresses, a camera, and a naturally nice location. Yeah. What like you can do something with that, and you know Joe. Did, I don't know if you saw Joe's movie Happy Christmas. Yeah, I did. Yeah, like this was trying to apply that model. They have basically the exact same budget. You know, Joe was like, we're in this weird position where after Drinking Buddies and after Listen Up, Philip, we could get like the same kind of actors that want to come make a million dollar indie yeah. to make a hundred thousand dollar indie with us now, because actors know that we're fun to work with. <laughs> so if he's like, I got Anna Kendrick after Drinking Buddies to come make a hundred thousand yeah. dollar movie. You can do the same with Lizzie Moss. Well, the funny thing is, is that like, you know, I talked to Stephen Dorff yesterday. Wow, really? Yeah. He was so good on the new True so Detective. So good. Somewhere is one of my favorite movies. It's great. But, A you know, really, like, really great movie. you know, but like in True Detective, I'm watching him like this is like it's like he he's like reborn or something like it's like as I felt in somewhere. He's always impressive whenever he comes into one of these huge roles. And and the point being is that like, you know, at some point we're talking and he's like, you know, I just, you know, I'll come in and read. I love to act. Yeah. So like if you give these talented people, you know, something that they can really, you know, get, you know, cut loose in, they've got to be thrilled. And, you know. As we've learned, like, and as you've known from working with Lynn or Joe, like, sometimes this is a week of time, two weeks. Listen to that noise. What is that? Is that Glendale Construction? That's my fucking yard guy. Do you schedule him to come when you have someone on? Well, I mean, I don't, I'm not that organized. Yeah. Hold on a minute. Maybe if I shut the blinds. I couldn't hear it until you said anything. No, I know, I know. It's sorry. We have stuff like this in Queen of Earth where there's like the yard guy outside. Yeah, he's he's got the same piece of equipment that that guy. You out hear there those has. machines, and they just drive you nuts. Oh my god, it sounds like that's in the fucking room. It's pretty. It's pretty loud now. Let's give him a minute. You couldn't go outside and ask him to move to the other side of the house. Well, I mean, it's like you know, it's a finite zone there. You know, I mean, he's, he doesn't. You know, eventually Is he mowing or just like no, it's blowing. What is the point of that? To get the leaves and dust off of shit. But where do they go? They just go into the sidewalk or the no, street. No, they put them in a bag. Oh, okay, so they get sucked up. Well, no, they don't suck them up. They usually blow them into an organized pile, and then they put them in a bin. It's so crazy. What a waste of energy. Why don't you just get a rake? This is crazy to me that this is like a... There's a guy on my street. I mean, it's sort of an advance, though. I mean, you know, at some point, you know, someone said, like, this raking's taking a long time, and uh, this is a more efficient way to do it. Yeah, it only takes, like, a $1,000 device with lots of energy and, like, battery power. I think it's that these guys usually use the gas ones. But, yeah, I mean, I understand your argument. There's a guy on my street that just walks around. You're saying return to the rake? I just, you know, there's a guy on the street that walks around with, like, a, a blower just blowing, you know, trash and leaves and dust off of the sidewalk. And it's just like, what is? How does this better than a broom? I I get it, but like, it, it, how is it better? It's a little more fun. It it's is le- fun. it's le- not for le- me, not for us inside. It's more no. fun for the guy. Yeah, of course, but it's a labor intensive. These guys got to move on. Yeah. you know they can't you know be spending all day with no. the rake. And I mean, there's not that much to rake. It's really just 
you know, it's maintenance, dude. But I, I understand your argument. You know, this is like, you know, that the I rake, like old things. I like, the, I like the shooting, rake, shooting on film. I yeah, like the rakes. rake is sixteen millimeters. Yeah, exactly. I like things that are simple. I like to read a book. I don't have a Kindle. Yeah, analog. Yeah, me I too. Like, I like to read a book. I like brooms. I don't like I don't like gas powered. I'm uh, with you too. Forwards. Like I, you know, I do the broom thing, and then I, you're, I have a, you're a broom guy. <laughs> yeah, I got a broom downstairs, but I also have vacuums. But like sometimes, like uh, like I don't even think I. I, I don't think there's another option than the broom. And somehow the woman that cleans my house every so often, like she's doing something else that seems much more efficient. Yeah. But do you live in a house that has, do you live in a house? Uh, we have a, we have half of a brownstone. That's nice. But as we were discussing, much like you, I have three cats. Yeah. House gets dirty. Yeah. It gets fucking, everything's And ours are all hair. long haired. Look at your, look at the, what you're sitting on. Uh, if you sit, if you oh, sit yeah, up. Cats love this kind of seat. <laughs> it's covered with hair. Yeah, no, we have a kitchen table with, cushions like this and the black and white cat sit on opposite sides of it what you have to accept with a cat is just crazy i mean i my my bedspread is covered with litter dust yeah and i i couldn't care less i'm happy to have that (laughs) i'd rather have that than than not the cats but you know the house gets dirty and then there's the throwing up yeah (sighs) it's weird are the three cats we have now are not barfers Mine aren't usually, but one of them will do it occasionally. Yeah, one yeah. of our cats that we don't have anymore would throw up like two or three times a week. Yeah, kind of like seemingly as a prank, like to get us up out of bed. <laughs> but we don't so, have a lot of barf at the moment. So you're doing a lot of thinking and making these movies. Yeah, more than I think you would think because they feel loose. Like they're not like they're but not like, like, but like. But does anyone outside of you? I'm sorry to interrupt. You don't no, have to apologize. But does anyone outside of you pick most of this shit up? Not really. Because, because there's there's no critics like that anymore, dude. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird. You would think, like, it's not that I'm dismayed because if someone likes the movie, great. But the movies are loose by design. Handheld camera work, dialogue that is scripted to feel unscripted. Yeah. And uh, people look at it and they think it's all made up. They don't understand the intricacy of some of the things that we really work on. And well, you're they- loading them up. They just feel loose to people, which is great. They are loose, but they're loose meticulously, especially the new one. You know, it's not like what Wes would do with the, the frame. Yeah, yeah, but it's not dissimilar. I mean, we're putting thought into all these no, things. No, I know. And there was a time where, you know, these clues and these hints and these, you know, the people that used to write about film when you were like the, the people that saw all the movies that you saw and were writing about those films in the day. You know, all the young blood Saris, you know, like the, yeah. the, the people that would really take it apart, you know, sen- uh, like the semiotics guys, like they would find these things. It used to be like a, a goal, I think. It was to sort of wonder whether or not you knew that these things were there. Yeah, and to be the first one to kind of catch on and, and say, you know. I don't know. I don't read much writing like that about film. I imagine it's out there. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, of course people are working in that model, but the problem is like, at least with, you know, there's like, there's like criticism and then there's like critical writing. Right. Like a review of a movie at a film festival, the movie premieres yeah, at 8 p.m. Yeah. and the review is out by midnight. Yeah. I mean, that's garbage. Like there's no quality to that. And, you know, I read these reviews, you know, Her Smell has these five long scenes. Five is an easy number to count to. You can do it on one hand. Yeah. And then I read these reviews the morning after in Toronto. The movie has four scenes. The movie has six scenes. Yeah. And it's like... Five. I, I would assume critics could count to five. Like yeah. this is this is galling to me that you would not only well, this is, 
miss that, but that you would then put it in writing and not even like say to your editor, can you check with the film's publicist if this movie has four or six scenes? They're, I mean, also they don't do their homework. They're sloppy. They don't give a fuck. Yeah. You know, like they misspell things. They, like, it's just a nightmare. Like even just like with people interviewing me or writing about something, how many times I have to call back and say like, I definitely did not say this. And like they take your words out of context? Or no, they no. Just... They just misquote. Yeah. Like it's like, it's like, I know what I said, you know, and it, it wasn't that person or that was not the reference I made and this doesn't make any sense Interesting. can you just change it because yeah. i don't mind that you're that you're putting the whole conversation as i talk to you but it's like get this point right do you read those things about yourself in not order usually to... sometimes they come down the pike and yeah. i'll read them like interviews because sometimes like i'm surprised at uh you know that i can that i'm making sense because mm-hmm. i talk so fucking much sometimes and, and then you want to see how people kind of well i want to see how it looks on the page because i, I yeah. didn't put it there yeah yeah no i mean i love stuff like that too i'm more likely to read an interview that I did then read a review of the movie at this point. Yeah, because like you want to see how your brain's working. I mean, I know like talking to you that you're you're receiving what I'm saying and we're having a conversation, but if someone's asking me questions and I'm and I'm like caffeinated and it's the morning and I'm on the phone and I'm just going, sometimes I like to look at what that looks and like. And also it's impossible to overstate this. Like again, we're here as I mean despite the noise outside, like this is as nice as it gets for a conversation when I do an interview and I'm at a cafe. Yeah around the corner from my house. Yeah, it's worse. And there's people around and I yeah. feel like I can't I can't really speak honestly cuz then I sound like an asshole to the person sitting next to me. Yeah. Like But also you're dealing with set questions too. Like yeah. it, there's limited engagement. There's a guy that's nervous or he's done it a million times and he's got two questions that he's really think are going to nail the thing. Yeah, and then I kind of, you know, you have to be quiet. Maybe you happen to get to the cafe during the one hour that no one else is talking and yeah. everyone is drinking coffee and reading. And then eventually you develop a pattern around these things. You do enough of uh, these interviews and, you know, you find like you're, you're giving roughly this. Oh. oh, hold on. It's a third noise. Yeah, there's like now it's like a, a mower. This is great. This is great. Uh, great material. I apologize. I, you know, with the headphones on, you can barely it can't be picking up on the microphones, right? Maybe a little. I yeah. mean, this is like a little bit much. P- Paul Rudd and I did uh, an improvisation around the noises. We did. <laughs> I'm sort sorry, of I a, can't rise to that occasion. We did sort of a, th- a, th- a, th- a throat singer of Tuva homage. Yeah, like to... like Yaima in the movie, which does throat singing. Yeah, yeah, right. Yes. Um, but Are... yeah, forget forget about like the same. I mean, this is so pleasant because like I'm a fan and we're having this conversation. But I did two hours of phone interviews yesterday. And probably seventy five percent of each one were the same answers, the same words, yeah, the same questions. Yeah, and you got to do it. But okay, so look, here's here's my experience with the new film, which I liked. Is was that like because I read you know the parts of the script at least that you know I was going to you know possibly audition for, mm-hmm. or according to your representation that was yours already. <laughs> yeah, Stoltz played it and he did good. He he did it very differently than I would have done it. Um, well, which is ama- which is interesting because at the time of the, your name coming up, I hadn't seen Glow yet. Oh yeah. Um, because I watch everything six months after everyone yeah. else does. Yeah. And then when I watched it, right after we wrapped, because I watched all of Gail's scenes right. when we when we were interested in her. I mean, the show is phenomenal. Oh, good. Like I loved it so much, Thanks. and you're so good on it. Like it's just a remarkable show. Thank you. There, there's there's a pattern to the 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 character of a guy like that. Yeah. You can do it a hundred different ways. Yeah. You can be the guy who's sweating bullets. You can be the guy who's got an ulcer tearing in his belly. And yeah. You can be the guy who's Mr. Cool. Yeah. It's just so fun to think about something like that, which on the page, I don't know that until an actor comes in and tells me their take on it. Well, I mean, the, I think my instincts would have like, you know, the interesting thing about those characters, and, and I think that Stoltz in the movie played it a, a little Hollywood, which was that there there was sort of a, a, a fundamental 
kind of detachment and a a you know a sort of uh, an active engagement in you know being sort of a, a f- seemingly a friend or a mentor. But you know, underlying it all was that you know he's a business guy. Very much so, and also as people pointed out, once we were doing it, kind of an enabler. Yeah, of, of course, of her, which is something that I. They all are. Oh, very much so. Yeah, which is very important to understanding the sort of patterns of dealing with an addict, uh, which you know the movie's very much about. But the extent to which he enables that character wasn't really apparent until we were doing the scenes, because by playing it cool as a cucumber Hollywood guy, I've got this figured out. Then he's the the one who just kind of lets her get away with it. And lets her get away with it and rolls the dice on on you know the, on the talent's well being because the talent they their their job is to manipulate the talent into continuing to you know be a money funnel really and and to try to you know maintain some sort of uh, you, you you know you don't want to kill the person but but you do turn a blind eye to certain things if they're still earning of course and you know I, I have this with people in my creative orbit. We all have this. Someone yeah. that's like, I can't really cut this person out because I need them yeah. or I really value them and they're maybe the best at what they do and they're very important to me. Yeah. But part of that means you just kind of, you get what you get. Yeah. And then you have to, the, the job is learning to work around those eccentricities. Why this story though? You know, like this story has been, you know, it, it's been attempted, it's been done. Uh, you know, it's tricky to create a fake rock band that is supposedly a, a huge rock band. Yeah. Um, you know, like I, I, the movie that, that keeps hitting my brain with it was that movie, I think it was called Gloria with Jennifer Jason Lee and Holly, uh, yeah, interesting. that's a, that's a, that's a, well, uh, who, who, who directed that? It was Ula Gosbard, I think maybe. And it yeah. was about sisters. Right. Right. One was a folk singer and Jennifer Jason Lee was the sister who was the punk rock right, drug yeah, addict. Yeah. yeah. No one's brought that up. Oh, that's you, a, yeah. We generally talk a lot about, um, did you see that movie? You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah. Yeah. I do yeah. know what you're talking about. We generally talk about, ladies and gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. Uh-huh. You know that movie? No. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, it's a great movie. Yeah. It's like a 16-year-old Diane Lane and Laura Dern. Okay. Or these teenage girls that start a punk band. Yeah. And um, uh, Paul Cook and Steve Jones from The Sex Pistols and Paul Simonon from The Clash yeah. are this other like British punk band that they're touring yeah. with. And, yeah. and, and Jones and Cook wrote the music for the movie. It's a great fake punk band movie oh Um, interesting but yeah i mean i you know i'd wanted to make a music movie and i tried to make one a few years ago that didn't happen set in the 60s Uh and you know this was my time and i i kind of came up with this character for lizzie and there has been no there has not been the 90s alternative movie the 90s grunge movie the 90s punk movie and i'm as far away from it both in time and also as close to it in my own life as like Todd Haynes and Velvet Goldmine. Right. That's 97. Yeah. That's looking back at about 74, 75. God, you're really doing the math. I got really into numbers yeah. on this, as Jason pointed out at the Q&A last night. But, you know, like, you make it about your thing. You know, if I did a 60s movie, it's like, yeah, I mean, I wasn't there. I just love this music. But, you know, but I do have to accept on some level that, you know, this is a meditation on that. Very much so. It's not, you know, I have no interest in doing the true story of something. Yeah. Because as a writer, then you're boxed in. Yeah. You can only do so much if you're no, I get looking it. at reality that closely. So just kind of taking but, a 25 year step back from the era I loved, the women and rock that I loved, the CDs that I loved. You know, I talked about being inspired by Gravity's Rainbow or Professor yeah. Desire to be inspired by a CD. 
Yeah, and you liked my talk with uh, Tanya. Tanya Donnelly, that was a great talk. Um, you had Kim and Kelly Deal on. Sure. That was great as well. Just, uh, I think I just had Kim on. Really? Oh, yeah. really? I thought it was both. No. I wonder why I thought that. I don't know. She talked about it. She Kelly probably Deal. talked about it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like, I mean, you were at, you were there for a lot of this. This yeah. was. Uh, I remember seeing the Throwing Muses when I was in college. Present tense music. Yeah, no, I thought, I and, and you definitely hit a lot of the chords, like, you know, uh, story-wise and, you, you know, and musically uh, about what it would be like. And, and they're like the scenes that really, like, I, but I, 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 it's interesting to me that you see this as fundamentally, you, you know, it's your music movie, but your focus was, uh, it's about drug addiction. It, it is, but it's not a drug movie. You know, no. it's not. Well, no, you, you went out of your way. You don't really see her do drugs. By design. Because, I know, I, feel, I felt that. Because then you're, again, you're boxed into like, Oh well, if she just did that, then she should be acting this way. Well, no, and also like there, it also leaves open for the fact: is she having a manic break? I mean, it, is how this, much is she even doing? And like, and and is this you know relative to her fame and the, her ego? Uh, is it you know relative to a bipolar disposition? Uh, because you were pretty careful outside of her taking a couple slugs of booze. You know, not to you know really sort of uh, you know get into the nuts and bolts. Oh, she of ducks into the bathroom. Blow or dope. Yeah. yeah, she goes into the back room and Lizzie and Agnes Dean, who plays Mari, her kind of you know her bass player and drug partner. Yeah, in the well, movie, you see her do drugs. Yeah, they created a lot of like talk to people. They looked at research and you know, if you take a hit of whatever we're deciding the scene is, what are you? Where are you at? One minute later, yeah. and where are you at? Twenty minutes later, because this movie you do have to address. If, you know, Mari takes a bump of something, we're still with her 20 minutes later when she's kind of... Fidgety. Yeah, and... Um, she was doing coke. Yeah. Yeah, and I guess, like... As she came up with. But, you know, like, it's not... Yeah, I didn't want to do, like, the drug movie or just, like, the no, music, yeah, we kept the Rise it. and Fall movie. It's more like, as you said, bipolar. This is a movie about seven women who all have these dual personalities. That's what I'm fascinated by in this kind of, you know, the punk persona, you know, calling yourself Sid Vicious when your name is John Beverly. Yeah, like, I like that part pretty good. I Just the idea that they all have these alter egos and the whole movie is this push and pull where is she Becky or Rebecca? And then at the end, when you kind of get the payoff of all seven women's real names in the seance, it's like, oh, this is really like, uh, there's a struggle here. You know, even Dirtbag Danny, he, yeah. you know, that's a fake name. Yaima, they call him Alvin. Like, yeah. People just create these personas to deal with fame, success, their professional public life. And I think that's really interesting. Right. So like, but I, the, the scene, some of the scene moments that really, like I thought were great was when she was by herself and nodding out or whatever the fuck she decided mm -hmm. she was on, where she was just sort of like almost catatonic and repetitive. Yeah, but then she pulls out of that, and out of nowhere, you pull a Manson song out of your ass. That's right. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you you caught that. <laughs> that's the thing. Like you have to, you know, when you do a movie that's just these long scenes, you have to establish through other means what the deal is with the characters. Yeah, you don't ever see Becky's record collection. Right. You imagine it's big, but you hear her pull out Manson. You hear her pull out Coxbar. Yeah. You hear her reference Iron Maiden. Yeah. You you know that she just has this brain for things. And what how, what was the decisions around shooting it? Like, you know, these different sections, all five, I, I imagine given the math nature of your creative uh, 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 vision that, y you know, you had a specific way of shooting each we did. section. Well, yes, you surmised correctly. <laughs> um, so each one, so five acts, each one had a, a rehearsal day where day one of the, the movie, we spent eight hours rehearsing act one. Yeah. No one, no filming. Right. Maybe you go- All for, scripted. All scripted. There's not a word in the final edit that's not on the page. Uh-huh. Uh, 
all the references, all the train of thought. Well, that was the other thing that I noticed that you, it was sort of an amazing uh, thing and I think an evolution for you was that, you know, some of this stuff was, you know, in the flow of the language was almost Shakespearean, not in the words being used, but, you know, in the way the the lyricism of the words flowed. I mean, that's, that was the hope, you know, like you read (laughs) Shakespeare. It's hard to pull off. It's very hard to pull off. I never doubted that she could do it. You read Shakespeare on the page, it maybe reads like gibberish. Yeah. Then you go see a beautiful production and the flow of it makes it logical. So you were conscious of that. Yeah. I mean, I was just so inspired, obviously, by classic five act tragedy structure. Yeah. Um, Merchant of Venice and Hamlet were on my mind. Yeah. Along with the, uh, at the time of starting to crack the script, the Guns N' Roses reunion tour. Uh-huh. That was another good episode. Yeah. Slash. Yeah. I, the, the, I love as soon as I saw that, I was like, I need to go for a walk today so I can listen to this. <laughs> he was great, right? But like the, that tour. There's another guy that uh, it surprises you that what's beneath the nickname. Yeah. Saul. Yeah. Like yeah. Saul and William. <laughs> two guys. Like that sounds like your accountants, not the yeah. you know the singer and the guitar player, the greatest band yeah. of my lifetime. Go have your taxes done by Saul and William. <laughs> but uh, it's just like. The, the structure of it was so exciting to me when I kind of cracked that. But then the question was, how do we shoot it? Yeah. And we came up with this idea of a rehearsal day where everyone gets to just feel it out, find the choreography. And then each act was three days uh-huh. of shooting where we would basically shoot 10 pages a day. Yeah, that's a lot. It is a lot, but it's one thing. Yeah. It's just one long scene. So you do it eight or nine times. The first three are just on Lizzie's face. Yeah. The next three are behind her. Yeah. The next three are getting everyone else in the room. You've done 10, you know, 10 takes 10 times and you have the whole thing and then tomorrow you just pick up right where you left off but what about the camera work in each separate five of the five it's just it's written into the script you know i knew because act- the first one is claustrophobic and all steady cam yeah by design yeah uh i wanted to be right there i never worked with steady cam i was really excited let's Se- celebrate it's it does sound really quiet all of a sudden but don't jinx it okay well, good. Knock, knock on wood I just wanted to learn how to work with Steadicam. The kind of Paul Verhoeven influence of the movie demanded it. And then the second act in the recording studio, you know, um, Sympathy for the Devil, the Godard Rolling Stones movie? It's just these long dollies rolling around, zooming in and out. And we said, if we're in a recording studio, I I, I said to Sean, act two is a recording studio. And he goes, dollies and zooms, like Sympathy for the Devil. And I was like, that's what it says on the page. I already wrote those words. <laughs> and then act three, you know, handheld as crazy as possible. Because each time the camera is changing what it's doing, it's just, again, it's just, that's what Becky's head is doing at that yeah. moment. It's either crazy and flying all over, or it's kind of paranoid and slow. Yeah. Or it's just shaky and insane. And then act four, it's just nothing moving, as static as can be. Yeah. But it was just a way of writing, writing the shots and yeah. saying like, the style of this movie changes every 25 minutes. And the last act? Goes back to the way the first one was. Yeah. Same location, same camera patterns, but now there's this kind of eerie, uh, you know, disembodied quality where she's been sober now for, you know, just a hair under two years. And it has this kind of weird dream, dreamlike. And also there was a couple of years after whatever happened the, that implies the, the, the sort of hitting of the wall in the film that it, uh, clearly it went on for a while That's after that. very important. I'm glad you noticed that. Like, yeah. It says when she's there, you know, I have a year next week. But it's not been a year since the last scene. Right. It's obviously anybody who has yeah, ever- Yeah, and apparently she made a record with that other band yeah. during that time. And, yeah. yeah. And that is kind of addressed later, you know, like- and then, Yeah. But yeah, that's very important that when she says, I have a year, anyone who's ever known anybody knows 
she didn't get sober the morning after the last scene. No. There was stops and starts. And, and also, I like the sycophancy of, of even people who are intimately, like of her mother mm-hmm. and her ex-husband, that, you know, they see what's going on, but, you know, she's been, you know, paying for their lives. Very much so. And simply, like, you know, we all know this. You you just can't get out of some of these relationships. They're your family. They're your creative They're partners. also your cash cow. And everyone says that about her. Says the golden goose, who's, Gail says this, golden goose who sprays golden piss in our faces. Yeah. Like, you want to not have that, but you can't. And you just know, and everyone in the movie, their agony is, our lives are tied to her, and we can't help her because she doesn't want help, and she won't help herself. And I like the, you know, the sort of thoughtful, the sort of tenuousness and fragility of, uh, you know, even a year sober is very, you know, dicey. And to be that... And having to go out on stage yeah, no, I for the first it. time in years. Sure. I have a friend who's sober and after the movie she said, I've never seen something that so accurately makes it feel like what it is when you have to step out, get in front of people, spotlight in your face. Yeah. But you know, Lizzie looked a lot at um like the Amy Winehouse documentary. Yeah. Which was, you know, like people were just every time she was on stage, people were like, Is she even gonna make it? Right. It's weird. She was really into that and she was really into um did you see Jim and Andy? The uh-uh. Jim Carrey, Andy oh, yeah, Kaufman I did. documentary. Yeah. yeah, she was really into that. Yeah, for some reason, that kind of like bottled mania. Yeah, really appealed to her. Yeah, for yeah. whatever reason. No, I could see that. Like, she definitely enjoyed from that. Well, great job, buddy. Thank you so much for for watching. I'm so flattered. Oh yeah, why wouldn't I? Of course. Uh, and thanks for talking. Thank you. Um, and good luck with the uh, with whatever happens with this movie and the next movie. Thank you. Okay, folks, that was uh, that was me and Alex Ross Perry. It was exciting, wasn't it? A lot, a lot talked about. There's, I, I kind of walked into his intensity a bit there. Uh, his most recent film, Her Smell with Elizabeth Moss, is available on Apple, Amazon, and other on-demand digital platforms. Okay. All right, I'll be home. I'll be home later today. Okay? I'll be home later today, and I'll talk to you from there. All right. No music. No guitar with me. Okay? Boomer lives!